Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Paul Teese, and in this episode of If When, we're talking about nuclear fusion with Ian Chapman, the CEO of the UK Atomic Energy Authority, and Clive White, Senior Vice President for Jacobs Critical Mission Solutions International. Ian and Clive, thank you both so much for joining me today. Uh, to begin our discussion, I'd like to start with Ian. So, Ian, you recently... Uh, had a, uh, a lecture to the Royal Society, and it was uh, in tandem with uh, your Kavli Medal lecture, and it was called Putting the Sun in a Bottle, The Path to Sustainable Fusion Power. Uh, congratulations, first of all, on this prestigious award uh, and, and the lecture that you gave. I really enjoyed it. it. It gave a very clear vision of the main challenges that need to be addressed to harness fusion and a pathway for achieving this. So, for people not familiar with nuclear energy technology, and I'll admit I am, I'm not a nuclear scientist, but have just a, a passing understanding of it, can you briefly describe what nuclear fusion is and how it works? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, Paul, thank you very much for your kind words. Um, so, so fusion happens in our sun. It happens in all the stars. It's the, the root source of the sun's energy. Um, and what's happening is that inside the sun, very light elements, types of hydrogen, are being forced close together and they fuse, they join, and when they join, they release a lot of energy. This is sort of different to conventional nuclear, so working nuclear power plants that we have today work from fission. In fission, what's happening is you're taking very heavy things, uranium, plutonium, you break them apart and that releases energy. So both release energy through a nuclear process, but in fusion, in fission, you break them, things apart. In fusion, you take light elements, force them together. Now, uh, in the sun, that happens because of the, the enormous mass of the sun. So those light elements, those types of hydrogen, they want to repel one another. So they don't actually want to fuse. It doesn't happen naturally. You have to force it. Now, it's forced in the sun because of gravity. The enormous mass of the sun pulls these things so close that they can fuse. Mm -hmm. That can't happen here on Earth. Of course, we can't recreate the mass of the sun here on Earth. Um, and so instead, we have to give the fuel um, even more energy than the center of the sun. So you take it to a temperature of about 150 million degrees, which just sounds ridiculous. You can't mm -hmm. think of temperatures that hot. Ten times hotter than the center of the sun. We do that here on Earth and make fusion happen that way. Just when I first heard that, it blew my mind. The fact that we could have a facility in a building that could have something that could get to 150 million degrees. Is, it really is just kind of is staggering uh, to the imagination. Now, Clive, you know, in doing a little a little background research on nuclear fusion, and, and I've got to stress little because, again, a very pedestrian understanding here, but it looks like scientists have been discussing the concept for about a century, but in terms of practical applications, it's still a fairly new idea and technology. Can you tell us a little bit about where it's at in terms of current development and how is it different from nuclear fission? Yeah, and thanks, uh, Paul, for the invitation to join. It's nice seeing you again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as Ian said, fusion has been around for billions of years. It's there powering the sun every single day. It's there as we talk. Um, mm -hmm. It's been captured on the planet. So one of the facilities uh, that uh, Ian runs is called the Joint European Taurus Jet, and that captures fusion and makes it work, albeit for a relatively small period of time. Other facilities around the world have done the same. And the challenge is to make sure that you can keep that reaction going for a period of time so that you can get the energy out. 
So probably the uh, facility that is right at the forefront of that at the moment um, is something called ITER. It used to be called the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. ITER is a little bit shorter and snappier. That's being built as we speak in the south of France at the moment and will hopefully have first fusion in 2025. And that will demonstrate that you can get more power out of one of these reactors than you put into it. Jet, put more power in and less power out. So ITER is that next step towards commercialising fusion. Now, you know, kind of coming back again to the idea of like um, how powerful these this technology is, you know, with like the 150 million degrees and things like that. And and then also um, dealing with things like waste and, and whatnot. You know, when people think of nuclear energy, they naturally may have questions about, uh, you know, the safety and environmental impact. And so, Ian... Can you speak to the potential impact of nuclear fusion and how it fits into the global clean energy agenda? And you know, what are some of the pros and cons of fusion energy in, in terms of the environment? In, in many ways, fusion is almost the perfect energy source in that it's carbon free. Um, it's base load. You don't wait for the sun to shine or the wind to blow. It would be mm-hmm. running continuously. Mm-hmm. Um, it has effectively inexhaustible fuel. Our fuel we get from seawater we have plenty of seawater and and lithium and lithium is enormously abundant in the earth's crust so we're not short of lithium it's inherently safe so unlike fission well one of the problems with with fission is that inside a fission reactor at any given time you've got a few weeks worth of fuel and so you do have this risk of a runaway event as we saw happened in, in chernobyl now there are uh, great safety protocols in place these days so that risk is very well managed in a, in a hazard environment but it's that's just impossible in fusion you know my whole career has been about trying to keep the reaction going you know, as clive said um, we keep it going for a short period of time the challenge is trying to keep it going for a long period of time so stopping it is dead easy um, so there is no risk of chain reaction and uh, it's very low land use so you don't have to take up a large area like you might have to with, with solar Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very high energy density, so you produce a lot of power for a small for a small footprint. And finally, waste. We so talk about waste. Um, fusion does produce waste. Um, it is a nuclear process that produces neutrons. That means that the steel, the structural materials that you, you build the power station from, mm-hmm. become irradiated, and they have a half life. It's, it's a relatively short half life, so you don't have the the waste that you might have with fission plants that can last for hundreds of thousands of years. So you don't have the same sort of legacy as you do with fission, but you do have some waste. But it's it's very manageable waste. We know how to deal with that sort of waste. Hmm. I'd like to ask you both to comment on a few large-scale nuclear fusion projects and share you know some insights on the steps and timelines to make nuclear fusion a practical reality. And so first, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with Clive. And uh, you had mentioned the the ITER. Uh, thermonuclear fusion reactor in the south of France. I understand there are a number of countries involved. It's a very ambitious project. Can you describe it for our listeners? You know, who's involved and how is Jacobs participating in that project? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, this is uh, international collaboration on a global scale. There are 35 separate countries involved in ITER, uh, funding it in some shape or form. Um, and this is a collaboration that will go on for 35 years. So the project's around about 20 billion euros in terms of cost. And as I mentioned earlier on, you know, first fusion, uh, first plasma rather, should be in 2025. Um, so it's hugely important. And for, you know, developing fusion, 
on a global scale probably needs that type of international collaboration to move forward. One of the great things is, as well as putting money into the uh, project, all those countries now get IPR out of it as well. And they've already built up a lot of IPR, intellectual property rights, in doing the science, the engineering, the manufacturing that's enabled them to help construct ITSA. So it's a huge amount of knowledge there that can now be taken back into those individual countries um, and develop their own fusion programs. And Ian will probably talk maybe a little, about, a little bit about the STEP um, reactor that is uh, being designed by UKAA at the moment as well, which is one good example. Um, just in terms of Jacob's involvement, we've been involved in fusion for decades, almost pretty much since the very beginning. And that's everything from some of the really complex science that you need to uh, understand and uh, implement in terms of the materials that you use in the uh, core of the reactor, the centre of the reactor, through to the manufacturing techniques that you use, through all the engineering design work, and now project and construction management. Um, and we support both the uh, ITER reactor directly, plus the European Domestic Agency, which is called F4E, Fusion for Energy. We support both those organisations, as well as Ian's organisation, UKAA, as well. So we're hugely proud about what we do in Fusion, and it spans the full capabilities that Jacobs can bring to bear to a, a global project of that scale. Hmm. Now, Ian, um, I'd like to ask you about this spherical Tomamak uh, for energy production. It's a, a mouthful, the STEP project. Clive, I think, just mentioned it. You know, it's under the auspices of the UK Atomic Energy Authority, and it's being funded by the UK government. If I understand it correctly, it has some similarities to the ITER reactor. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So, so ITER, as Clive said, is this big international collaboration, and it, and it will be the first time that we get to real fusion conditions. We get a lot more power out than put in. And, and the world needs ITER. It, absolutely, ITER will be the first to do this, and ITER must work, right, for fusion really to have a chance of success. But in parallel to, to building and, and exploiting ITER, every single one of the ITER partners is thinking about the type of power plant that follows ITER and how you use all of the knowledge and the supply chain development and capability that now exists from building ITER to actually build power stations and put power onto the grid. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing in the UK is, um, is the STEP programme. Now, STEP is a slightly different geometry to ITER. ITER is designed essentially based on the JET model. So JET is the, the biggest fusion facility in the world today that, that we, we operate here in the UK on behalf of all of our European partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and JET did what it was designed to do. And on the basis of JET, we're building ITER. But it is big, right? So ITER, to, to, to orient you, is like the, the size of a football stadium, right? So it's, it's a really big big machine mm-hmm. um, and so it's expensive you know Clive talked about 20 billion euros that sort of uh, ticket price mm-hmm. and if every time you want to build a power station you've got to raise that sort of money then it might take fusion quite a while to penetrate into the market even if all the technical problems are solved it then becomes a market dynamics problem mm-hmm. an economics problem so the the idea behind step is to have a design which is a lower capital cost so it's smaller it's cheaper um, and hopefully that means that it might penetrate into the market more quickly. So that's the the, the the approach that we're taking in the UK. But it comes with more technical risk because, as I said, ITER is on the footing of JET. It's on known technology. Mm-hmm. It's a scaled-up version, but it's relatively known technology. By going in this slightly different approach, we're, we're on a, a less firm technical footing. So there's a bit more technical risk to going that approach, 
but hopefully it, it leads to a lower cost to the to the consumer and to the utility that builds these machines. Mm -hmm. Now, are there are there other fusion development projects of note across the globe that you'd like to briefly touch on? Sure. So, um, as I said, all of the ITER partners have their own plan for how they're going to build power stations that, that come after ITER. So Europe as a whole entity, so, so the, uh, the wide collaborative Euro European program is, probably has the most advanced power station design program, a machine called DEMO, so Demonstration Reactor, uh, which is essentially using ITER-like technology, a slightly bigger version of ITER. And that's more or less the same approach that's being taken by the Chinese. They have a, a similar variant, slightly slightly smaller than the European one, slightly higher performance. The Koreans as well uh, also have a similar program, as do the Japanese. So they're all going in the same direction. In the UK, we're going for this slightly smaller variant, uh, lower capital cost. And the US are going in a similar direction. So actually, or, uh, next week, um, the US National Academies of Sciences will be producing a report which outlines a roadmap for the US fusion program. And mm -hmm. my expectation is that that will come out and say they should target a low capital cost, high innovation program to try to bring down the, the, the cost of power stations. So that's what the US are doing. And then the last thing that's worth mentioning is that there's a, a really buoyant and, and ever-growing private sector. So everything I've talked about so far has been publicly funded um, mm -hmm. programs, but there's actually quite a lot of money going into the private sector as well now where you can see the market has increasing appetite for investment in fusion. And, you know, if you go back maybe 10 years, it was largely philanthropists and people who really wanted to change the world who were investing in fusion. And now you're getting oil and gas majors mm -hmm. and sovereign wealth funds and private equity backers mm -hmm. um, putting money into fusion. So the right types of investors are much broader portfolio of investors. And a few of the interesting projects. So here in the UK is a, a company called Tokamak Energy and in the US, a company called Commonwealth Fusion Systems, both of whom are looking at high temperature superconducting magnets. That in principle is a really great thing for fusion. So to make fusion happen, you need big magnets. Mm -hmm. This would allow you to go to the, the strongest, highest magnetic field magnets that, that could exist in the world, which is a, a good thing for fusion, allows you to get a lot of fusion power. And if they can deliver that, it's really quite transform transformative in our in our field. So those are two projects to really watch out for. Mm. So when I was watching your your video speech to the the Royal Society, you you kind of explained, and you know, for our our audience at home, you know, magnets are are super important in fusion because of the effect that they have to stabilize. You know, as I understand it, the 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 atoms so that they can create that. 150 million degree energy source without just melting through, you know, the earth, you know, through the earth or, you know, through the, um, through the facility. So mag the magnetic field is super important. Now, you know, in that, in that video, Ian, you talked about the five main challenges for bringing this technology to reality. Can you briefly share those with our audience and, and what have we learned from the development or failure of other first-of-kind breakthroughs to speed up development? So the five big challenges that I talk about for delivering fusion, the first in some senses that the one that people have heard about is that we have a fuel which is 150 million degrees, mm -hmm. so 10 times hotter than the center of the sun, which sounds crazy, right? But, but we do that every day. And we do it, as you say, by using very big magnets, the biggest magnets that we've ever created here on Earth. Mm -hmm. and they effectively sort of levitate that fuel. So you can't let that fuel touch the walls of the machine because it would just instantly melt, right? So you levitate it, you hold it away from the wall using these big magnets. 
The second big challenge is that ultimately some of that heat does escape. So like ev every fluid, you know, water going down a pipe or air going over an aeroplane wing, there's, there's some turbulence in them. And when you have a gas which is thinner than air, but but hotter than the center of the sun, mm. unbelievably, it has a bit of turbulence in it, right? There's a bit of um, instability. And so some of the heat gets out to the edge. And then you have to think very carefully how you're going to exhaust that heat, how you're going to get the heat out of the machine. That's the sort of second big challenge that we face. Then the third challenge is that as well as this incredible heat source, you also have the most intense neutron source on Earth. So much higher energy and more numerous, more of them, neutrons than are produced in a fission reactor. And as those neutrons pass through the material that you build the machine from, steel or tungsten, whatever you might build the, build the power, power station from, they will cause little displacements inside the material lattice, which then change the properties of that material. They'll change its strength or its brittleness or its creep. And that affects the lifetime of the plant. So if you build a power station, you want it to run for at least 40 years. And if those neutrons affect that lifetime, that really matters to the cost of electricity. So that's the third big challenge. The fourth challenge is where we get our fuel from. So I talked about we can extract one type of hydrogen from seawater, loads of seawater. The second type of hydrogen, an isotope called tritium, is radioactive. It's a short half-life, only has a half-life of about 12 years. Um, and because it has this short half-life, you don't find it naturally. All the natural tritium that existed has very long since decayed and gone away. Right? So you have to make your own tritium, breed your own tritium. Mm. Um, we do that by putting lithium around the outside of the power station. Then as the neutrons pass through the lithium, they produce tritium. And then you have to extract the tritium from that, that blanket of material and then freeze it into little pellets, little bullets that you then fire back into the core of the machine to keep the fusion going. So we have to make our own tritium and then keep injecting it in to keep keep the fusion happening. Mm -hmm. And then the, the fifth challenge um, is about maintaining the machine and making sure that it runs as much of the time as possible. I often say about fission stations, if, if they're out for a month, it affects the share price, right? So that they have to be running to, to, to be cost competitive. Um, the same will be true of fusion. It has to be available. It has to be running. And so the the availability of the of the power plant is really important. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, if if something you know, if one of the components melts because you, you know some of the hot material comes out and melts it, you need to go in and, and replace that component. Mm -hmm. And because you irradiate the material, it's short half life, but it does get radioactive. You don't really want to send people in, so we want to use complex first of a kind robots that can go in extract that damaged tile and replace it with a new one and then get out quickly so that you can turn the machine back on uh, and make sure that you're producing electricity as much as much of the year as possible so those are the five big challenges and i've forgotten just, the second part of the question yeah it's, it's really it's, <laughs> let, let, let me okay. chip in because i think one of the other things was about you know how you avoid those first of a kind uh, sorts of issues and it. um, <laughs> it's interesting if you if you look back over the history of fusion i mean fusion reactors uh, from you know initial concept through to implementation relatively short period of time um but when you look at fusion a huge amount of research and time and effort has gone into this you know uh, mm. iter is uh, you know say first plasma in 2025 um there's then reactors that will not only take it from the more power out uh, compared to power in through to um, you know being able to go online in the way that Ian talks about with either STEP or with um, uh, the demo reactors. So, you know, a huge amount of research is going in. Um, but as Ian also said, the prize is phenomenal. You know, you know, 
almost uh, limitless fuel, minimal amounts of waste, energy that will be there for the whole planet. The prize is very well worth going after. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then the, the inter- environmental or the decrease in the environmental impact compared to, I, I believe, you know, um, petroleum-based fossil fuels and things that we're seeing as well as seems to be immense as well. Now, Clive, coming back around to the discussion on the difference between fusion and fission, is fusion complementary to fission and other technology? Or is the development of a fusion supply chain dependent upon a parallel investment in fission and, and other clean energy technology? Like, how, do you, how do you see this all evolving? So they're absolutely complementary in very many respects. Um, so, you know, the technologies are different, but a lot of the, the science, the engineering, the manufacturing techniques, some of the construction techniques are very readily transferable from fission into fusion. So I think supply chains that are there at the moment can readily transfer across, and that, that capability is very good. Um, you look at what Jacobs has done, and a lot of the work that we do in fusion has been bred from our pedigree on fission in actual fact. So, you know, a really good uh, real-world example. Mm. Um, but in terms of that complementary nature, and um, you know, if any country moving forward um, just relies on one form of energy, it's generally not a, a great policy. So I'm a, a big fan of having a diverse energy policy. Mm-hmm. So as Ian said earlier on, you know, uh, you know, when the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, well, solar and uh, wind is pretty good. But those days when it's not, you need something. So you need the base load that fission and fusion reactors can provide. So a balanced energy portfolio is generally, I think, uh, uh, the right sort of policy to adopt. Fusion and fission very much go hand in hand. Um, if you look at the timescales, you know, fission's been around for you know several decades. Many of the reactors that are going online now have got another 40, 50 years worth of life left in them. Mm-hmm. As fusion reactors come online in maybe 10, 20 years' time, probably 20 years plus, then they actually fit together time-wise very well as well. Mm-hmm. So, Ian, you know, we, we're living in really unprecedented times, of course, and, uh, you know, we've been dealing on a global scale with the uh, coronavirus pandemic now for, for about 12 months. And, you know, if, if there's one lesson that, we can pull from it is that when there's a will, there's a way, right? When we really need to address something that's looming, uh, society, you know, commercial enterprises and government, you know, uh, and, you know, the sector in this case, healthcare has shown a remarkable level of agility and activity in addressing a crisis head on. And so, you know, wondering if maybe we're seeing, given the, the, the growing energy needs of the globe and, you know, addressing the environmental pressures therein, if nuclear fusion and a speed, speed to adoption there, if there's not maybe an analogy that we can draw from that, I wonder if you had some thoughts to share about that. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. I I think there's two things that I would point out there. One um, is that solving COVID, solving a, a global pandemic needs to be done at a global level. There's no point in a country coming up with a vaccine for its people. It doesn't matter, right? You have to roll that out globally or you never actually deal with the problem. There's absolutely the same applies to clean energy. There's no point in the UK saying, we've got a lot of wind, we'll be okay putting up offshore wind farms. That doesn't solve the problem for China, right? So we have to solve a global problem here or it, or it just doesn't, it doesn't actually solve the issue. The second thing is is imperative. There's a, a, a great quotation from one of the founding fathers of fusion, a chap called Levart Simovich, who was one of the inventors of the, the power plant concept that, that we use today. 
mm-hmm. who was asked back in the 70s at a press conference we said when when will we have fusion when will it be working and uh, a very clever guy so he didn't say it'll be in x years instead he said fusion will be ready when society needs it and that holds true today as much as it did back then society needs fusion so you know the the imperative is there we have to make it ready okay and then so uh ian and clive just one final question for for both of you so Ian, i'll start with you and then clive i'll come back around and ask the same question so ian given its potential and your view does nuclear fusion get an appropriate level of media attention and interest from policymakers? and if not why do you think that is and what can change that short answer is no i think the, the sea is shifting I'd say the tide is turning on this. If you look at the, the recent UK energy white paper, which came out, or the 10-point the plan for a green industrial revolution, which the Prime Minister launched just before Christmas, in both of those documents, fusion is mentioned. And fusion is an aspiration for the UK government. And they have a concerted policy and investment and, and thinking about all the enabling factors that, that they need to do, like finding a site for a power station and, and making sure there's a regulatory environment and framework. So, so the government are really taking it very seriously and they're doing all the enabling things that they need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, the, the, the prominence in the wider general public and policymakers at large is definitely not there. Um, and and we, we as a community need to work hard to demonstrate the value of fusion and why it's so important, the things that we've discussed today, and could be so influential in, in, in tackling this sort of net zero climate emergency that we face as a, is the, in my view, the biggest, the biggest thing that our generation needs to solve. In terms of why it doesn't get the right level of attention, I think partially this is down to public relations mistakes that were made in the past in fusion so back in the in the 60s and 70s there were very bold claims about delivering fusion in the next few years mm-hmm. and that never happened and now fusion has this this narrative around it that it's always 30 years away and always will be and so people a lot of people that do know about fusion have written it off and said it's always tomorrow's technology mm-hmm. but actually the field is evolving enormously and ITER will demonstrate a big net gain it w- will show a lot more power out than put in mm-hmm. and as clive has said ETA starts in five years if five years is not forever away it's mm-hmm. five years and all of a sudden fusion is going to be on this scale working on this scale showing that you can have fusion on a commercial scale and that will be a step change for our community genuinely it will be because you're already beginning to see market appetite uptick, but when ETA works and demonstrates that fusion really can happen, mm-hmm. I think you'll see that really exponentiate. Mm. And it seems like there's a bit of a zeitgeist going on too, where people are getting serious about energy production and the environment. And, you know, so the market is, is kind of open, much more open to it than maybe they were in the sixties and seventies. So, so Clive, there's the same question for you and just want to get your insights as well. You know, the level of in, or level of attention that it gets from the media and interest from policymakers, and and what can we do to change that? Yeah, Ian's covered. Uh, I think many of the key points. So just a couple of extra ones from me. Um, so if you look back at you know the way that uh, public awareness of climate change has increased over the last five to ten years or so, mm-hmm. that's going up exponentially. And I think COP twenty six later on this year uh, in Glasgow in the UK will help to sharpen both individuals' interests and also the global political community's interests as well. And I think that will potentially be a real galvanising force to get some more momentum behind climate change 
And with that will come the search for the energy sources that are going to give us the, um, you know, the carbon reduction that we need, uh, whether it's uh, fusion or fission, they are zero carbon, wind and solar, zero carbon. Um, so I think there'll be a lot more interest, I think, hopefully after the end of this year. But it's, that interest isn't just going to come by us all buying, uh, being bystanders. So to Ian's point, as an industry, we can and should continue to uh, lobby um, and message this to our politicians in all the countries around the world. Equally, each and every one of us, anybody listening to this podcast, have got their own personal contributions to make. We've never been in a more connected world than we are now. And that connection between individuals and their local leaders, their national leaders, is a very short connection. And so people can reach out, make their voices heard, and put the case for fusion, put the case for low carbon, and put the case for a low carbon future. All right. Well, Ian and Clive, thank you both so much for joining me today and sharing your, your insights and knowledge about nuclear fusion and where the industry is going. Really appreciate it. Ian and Clive, thank you both very much. Thank you. you. At Jacobs, we're always looking for dynamic and engaged people to join our team. Bring your passion, your ingenuity, and your vision, and let's see the impact we can create together. Visit careers.jacobs.com for details.